Hello and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies and the Sainsbury Institutes for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxham, Project Support Officer at the Sainsbury Institute and a researcher of Japanese war heritage. As museums across Japan celebrate the 1,400th anniversary of the death of Prince Shotoku Taishi, the legendary figure who brought Buddhism to Japan, the Sainsbury Institute, together with the Sainsbury Center for Visual Arts at the University of East Anglia, is currently collaborating with major universities and museums in Japan to create a special exhibit commemorating the event. This Shotoku intervention will display the Sainsbury Center's collection of Japanese Buddhist and Shinto artifacts, centered around a rare 13th century Kamakura period statue of a female Shinto deity. To better explain the significance of Shotoku Taishi, Beyond Japan will be exploring over three episodes the religious, political, and historical context of this dynamic period of East Asian history. We hope you enjoy our Shotoku miniseries. Our second Shotoku interviewee is Chizuko Allen, Professor of Asian and Pacific American Studies at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and researcher of Korea-Japan relations in ancient times. He will discuss the hidden history of the powerful woman of Japan's distant past through the first Empress of Japan, Empress Jingu. Through Jingu and other examples, we can see how empresses played a key role in engaging the Japanese state with continental kingdoms and even lead military campaigns their record superseding that of their husbands in the ancient records of the Kojiki and the Nihon Shoki. We also discuss how this legacy was appropriated by expansionists in the 16th and 19th century before being buried in the post-war period through modern interpretations or misinterpretations of these texts. We hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, Chizuko. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you. Good morning, Oliver. Thank you for having me. So, uh, first of all, we'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there? Okay. Growing up in Japan, I was always interested in history and especially ancient history. Uh, when I was a college student in Japan, I met a University of Hawaii professor who was teaching as a visiting scholar at the University of Tokyo. And he invited me to study Korean history, his area of expertise, at the University of Hawaii. So that's how I began to study Korean history and also specializing Japan-Korea relations in ancient times, as well as in the 20th century. I see. So the central figure to this episode is Empress Jingu, one of the legendary emperors from the foundational Japanese texts, the Kojiki and the Honshoki. As we're dealing with a lineage of emperors that supposedly started two and a half millennia ago, let's start with the beginning. Could you give us a brief summary of the imperial lineage up to Empress Jingu in the 5th century, please? Okay, so Jingu was a consort to Chuai, and Chuai is the 14th on the traditional list of Yamato kings, or the rulers that we call emperors today. So I respect the list of kings given in the chronicles, uh, the Nihon Shoki and Kojiki. Although many scholars doubt the existence of the first eight or 10 emperors, but that's not my position. But at the same time, <clears throat> I don't consider all details given in the chronicles to be historical facts. For example, the chronicles make early kings' reigns extremely long 
the length of Jingu's rule, for example, according to the Nihon Shoki, was 69 years. And that's not realistically possible. So we should assume that the average length of reign by early Yamato kings was around 10 years or so, just like the average length in later periods. So if we do that, then the total time of rules by the 13th emperors before Jingu and her husband Chuai becomes about a century and a half. So only a century and a half. So in some, the first emperor Jingu's time was possibly in the mid third century,、uh, although the chronicles make his enthronement look like it was as early as 660 BC. So I feel that the fourth century. Was an important period because that's when the Yamato kings extended their dominance to many parts of Japan, Honshu, and Kyushu. For instance, Prince Yamato Takeru, the father of Chuai, traveled to many places and conquered many regional laws, according to the Nihon Shoki and Kojiki. So it was in the late fourth century. When Jingu and Chuai were still faced with challenges posed by the powerful state of Kumaso based in southern Kyushu. So, this takes us up to Jingu. I see. So, let's discuss Empress Jingu in your 2003 article, Empress Jingu, a Shameless Ruler in Early Japan. You claimed that she represents a trend of women as rulers in ancient Japan and the beginning of relations between Japan. And the mainland through the Korean kingdom of Sila. Who was Jingu, and why do you think she got so much more coverage in the Kojiki and the Nihon Shoki than her husband, Emperor Chuai? Okay, so Jingu's original name was Okinaga Tarashi Hime, or Princess Okinaga Tarashi. So she was a consort to the 14th ruler, Chuai. Okay, so Jingu came from a prestigious family.、Uh, on her father's side, she was a fifth generation descendant of Emperor Kaika, the ninth emperor. And on her mother's side, she was a descendant of a Shilla prince who had migrated from southern Korea to Japan, well, about a century before. So, according to the Nihon Shoki, her husband Chuai died early because of his disobedience to gods. After his death, it was Jingu who ruled the country, led a successful military campaign to the Korean Peninsula, and designated their son, Ojin, a successor to the throne. So she accomplished so much as a woman. And that's the reason why. In Japanese history, there were other women rulers. There were eight formally recognized in the chronicles.、Right? And、uh, six of them ruled in the 6th, 7th, and 8th centuries.、Yeah. But none of them accomplished as much as Jingu did.、Yeah. And uh, the, the other、uh, women rulers who were formally recognized all came from the imperial family. They were all daughters and granddaughters of previous emperors. And They were simply installed as rulers due mostly to the lack of mature male successors at the moment.、Uh, so these women occupied the throne until eligible males, often their sons,、uh, became ready. But in the case of Jingu, Jingu pretty much took the throne on her own.、Okay? And she had competitors 
because her husband Chu Ai had an older and more prestigious consort, Princess Onakatsu, uh, who was a granddaughter of Emperor Keiko. So, under normal circumstances, this princess would have become empress, and her son would have become the successor to the throne. But instead, it was Jingu who came from a less prestigious background. She seized power after Chu Ai's death and fought his mature sons. And she led troops to Korea and made sure that her son would succeed to the throne. So you cannot find such a woman in later empresses. She really broke with convention then. Right. So in your article, you argue that the downplaying of Jingu in ancient history has been a result of Japanese historians interpreting history, which tried to explain her as a mythical figure representing the deeds of several empresses over time. Why do you argue that this is incorrect? And what do you believe the motive was behind this misinterpretation? So, as I said, the later empresses who ruled, so they occupied the throne only to make sure that their sons or other eligible male members of the family become eligible and ready for the throne. But that was not the case of Jingu. Okay, so there are some cases similar to Jingu. Uh, for instance, Emperor Saime, she organized an expedition to Shilla in southern Korea, and also she gave birth to a son in Kyushu uh, when she was out you know, preparing for the expedition. So there are some similarities between Jingu and Emperor Saime, who lived in the 7th century. However, as I said, Jingu was fundamentally different from Saime and the other emperors. Okay. So Jingu's military campaign to the Korean Peninsula ushered in an era of new diplomacy and new exchanges with the Peninsula states. I think many scholars today deny Jingu's historicity because they simply cannot believe her exceptional actions and achievements, especially as a woman. What she accomplished is just beyond our imagination. Okay. But the more deeply we look into early Japanese history, the more importance we seem to find in the role of women. Are there any other examples of empresses leading invasions? I mean, the, the woodblock prints that I've seen of Empress Jingu seem to imply that she was physically there on the Korean Peninsula leading armies. Were women often leading armed forces in this time? Okay. Yes, there are small examples. Okay, the chronicles, the Nihon Shoki, do depict some women leaders, well, in some regions like Kyushu, for example, and they resisted the Yamato forces. And these, you know, regional forces were sometimes led by women or pairs like brother and a sister, you know, who ruled that region. You know, so there are many examples like this, but they are small. But the biggest example, uh, of course, is Queen Himiko, the Himiko of the third century Japan, right? So her actions, her activities are depicted in Chinese historical documents of that time. So Himiko was a spiritual leader, okay? And she was assisted by her brother, who was in charge of military and administration. 
So this pair, the brother and the sister, uh, rule the country of Yamatai. Well, we don't know where Yamatai is. Well, the scholars are still arguing, but uh, yeah, certainly Himiko uh, is a good example. And there are many other smaller examples in Nihon Shoki. All right. In your 2003 article, um, you state that it was in the time of Empress Jingu that imperial rule shifted from women to men, which is quite surprising given what we just discussed and how she was so exceptional and, and uh, such a clearly a very ambitious leader. What were the factors behind this shift and how did this prevent a return of empresses and the centuries that came afterwards? Right. So it was the indigenous Japanese tradition to have a pair rule, a brother and sister, or sometimes a husband and wife, or sometimes uh, an uncle and niece, uh, or a nephew and aunt. You know, So the man-woman joint rule was quite common. Well, based on what we discover in you know, documents, as well as uh, in archaeological finds, but this very old indigenous tradition sort of eroded as the Yamato state well intensified its interaction with the states in the Korean Peninsula and China. That's how I feel. So China had already established patrilineal and patriarchal society. Okay, and the Chinese emperors were always men. Okay. And uh, the Korean states were also following suit, although they had their own indigenous traditions as well. Uh, so that's one. And second, the warfare was advancing during this period of 4th century, 5th century. Okay? So the states were expanding, and you need a strong military for that. Yeah. And Japan imported advanced weapons from the continent and from the peninsula and horses and horseback riding equipment okay, to create a strong military, right? So man's role naturally was expanding, you know, during this time of warfare. Uh, so it's sort of ironical, I feel, that, uh, you know, the Jingu's military campaign to the Korean Peninsula sort of ushered in an era of, you know, new warfare, okay? They must have imported a lot of weapons and, you know, horseback riding skills, equipment from the peninsula, from the time of Jingu in particular, right? So this exchanges and relationship with the peninsula and the continent actually intensified and accelerated the rise of men and decline of women. But of course, the process was gradual, gradual. Interesting. I'd just like to explore this idea of pair rule a bit more. Do we know from the sources available whether within these pairs the power was evenly balanced between the male and the female figure? Okay, the sources, right? So in Japanese language, uh, there are many studies about this subject. Maybe not so much recently, but actually in English, there are scholars such as John Pigott, also, Sarah Nelson. Sarah Nelson passed away, I think, a couple of years ago. So both of them are historian, archaeologists, anthropologists. Okay, so these women scholars in the English-speaking world, they have studied this subject of pair rule in ancient East Asia. 
So, so there are some studies on this. I see. Thank you. It would be good if we could briefly discuss how the Empress Jingu was regarded in Japan in more recent times. In your article, you suggest that she was used as a symbol of Jingoism and a historical precedent for invading Korea during the days of the Japanese Empire. You also suggest that she was shunned as an historical figure in the post-war. Could you unpack that for us, please? Sure. So Jingu's story of successful military campaign to Korea was inspiring, you know, as you can imagine, to many Japanese expansionists in later times. I think, for example, you know, the 16th century Japanese invasion of Korea, commanded by Hideyoshi, for example. Yeah, they knew about Jingu's story, of course. It was an inspiration to them. Okay. And not just in the 16th century, uh, of course, the 19th century. So when Meiji Japan pursued its expansionist policies abroad, Jingu's story came to symbolize Japan's glorious past. So the Japanese government printed her portrait, actually, on Japanese currency notes in the late 19th century. So... uh, these notes were in use for 12 or 20 years in the late 19th century. And, and not just that, her achievements, especially her expedition to Southern Korea, were always taught as historical facts at public schools in Japan until 1945, until the end of the Pacific War. So, yes, Jingu's story was very, very popular. Everybody knew it you know, until the end of the war. But after the war, everything changed. Everything changed. The pre-war Japan, okay, they used Jingu's story to justify the 20th century Japan's annexation of Korea. So Jingu's uh, occupation, well, it was a short occupation, but the the pre-war Japanese scholars thought that Japan occupied Southern Korea for two centuries, starting the time of Jingu. Okay. So it was a precedent for Imperial Japan's annexation of Korea. Yeah. But the post-war Japan changed everything. Right? So no name such as Jingu or Emperor Jinmu was mentioned in Japanese schools. So in Japan, I grew up not knowing anything about Jingu. Well, maybe until the time of college. Okay. Also, Empress Jingu is not a popular subject in academia. Not many scholars study the subject. But I began studying the subject seriously uh, because I realized that she was such a critical figure in Japan's ancient history and relationship with Korean kingdoms. Yeah, definitely. So her negative image or you know, her lack of image in post-war Japan, was that more to do with her connection with imperial expansionism or was yes, it more to do with definitely. her being a powerful yes. woman? Right, right. Yeah. The second part, the image of powerful uh, woman in Jingu, I think that's something that many women would welcome in modern times, right? But her image as a expansionist and you know an imperial expansionist in Korea, uh, that was uh, that was such a negative image, 
such a negative image. Well, it was a positive image until the end of the Pacific War. But after the war, the intellectual climate totally changed and people just gave up or shunned everything that was associated with Japan's imperial expansion. So, yes, due to that connection, yes, people just continue ignoring her even to this day. And do you hope to rehabilitate her image through your research? Yes, yes, yes. I, I am hoping that. Am how, would you, hoping. how would you like her to be seen? Well, that's a good question. She represented all the women who were so powerful, who were so critical, playing the role as a state leader at the time. Women's leadership was actually needed, and it worked well in the indigenous society of Japan. So she represented all the women who came before and after her. And at the same time, she did usher in a new era. You know, she challenged something totally new, totally new. And her going to Korea or sending troops to Korea, well, turned out quite successful, quite successful at the time. Or maybe the way she did was not the way we imagine or not the way that the Nihon Shoki Kojiki depicts to us or the way we interpret the accounts to be. But nevertheless, okay, I think many good things happened thanks to her expedition that initiated you know, intensive interaction with other states. So I want to, yes, promote a positive image in Jingu. Yeah, it seems like having read the history of the centuries that came afterwards that Japan was relatively close to the ally of the Sila kingdoms and perhaps it wasn't such a, an aggressive invasion as uh, she now has this negative connotation of being. But yeah, maybe, maybe we could read into history more as uh, one of diplomacy, perhaps. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, of course, that uh, the authors of Nihon Shoki and Kojiki, well, they were very ethnocentric and they wanted to make the Yamato state look like it dominated all other states, including the states in Korea. But well, the truth of the matter, of course, wasn't that the Yamato perhaps had, you know, an equal relationship with other states, right, in the peninsula and maybe the continent as well. So we have to undo the knot, undo the knot, and try to find the truth that's hidden in the accounts that have been mistreated or distorted in many of our interpretations. I feel. Definitely. Well, thank you for answering all of my questions. Uh, before we finish the episode, could you share with us what other projects you're currently working on? Okay, so I just recently published a Korean history survey book. It's titled The Making of Korea in East Asia. Okay, so this book is for college students studying Korean history. So my next project uh, is a book on ancient Japan and Korea relations. So I hope to depict Jingu uh, once again, well, from slightly a different light, maybe a little more political okay, and diplomatic as well. 
Great. Well, we'll all be looking forward to that. Thank you, Chizikor. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Oliver. You can find a link to Chizikor's research profile in the description below. Next week, we'll be joined by Professor Brian Lowe of Princeton University, who will help us understand the challenge of determining history from myth when looking at such ancient texts as the Kojiki and the Nihon Shoki. We hope you'll join us then for the final episode in our short docu mini series. Thank you for listening.